All right, welcome again to Catalogs and Noise. Today we are going to talk about the uh, second chapter in Ulysses uh, that we are going to be referring to as Nestor. Um, my name is Joe. I'm here with Dave, Josh, and Tom. And um, yeah, sorry about the voice. I might be a little under the weather, but who gets sick in the summer? I don't. I don't know. You're dating this if you're saying <laughs> it's in the summer. We uh, we we need to uh, keep some mystery about us, but. Um, all right, so, so at the end of uh, taping last week when we were talking about Telemachus, uh, Josh actually was mentioning, um, what is it, the, the kind of Gifford um, kind of layout of, of all that, that Ulysses noise about, like, um, what, is the, what is the subject area, what is the... Oh, uh, Stuart Gilbert. And, is it Gilbert? And the various, yeah, well, it? it's... Gifford. Oh, yeah. Gifford is, uh, he's a later right. annotator, but uh, in the... Uh, when Joyce was still composing Ulysses, he gave to a couple potential commentators various schemata, you know, various schemes right. that would lay out like this is this is what the this chapter is go- the theme of the chapter, the the technique of the chapter, the symbol and whatnot. I, I don't know. We, we decided that we weren't going to spend too much time on uh, that. I thought, but yeah, but no, no, I, I agree. That's that was my my point. Um, However, I think some of those things are worthwhile. I think some are more than others. Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, I don't know, as kind of symbolism and such, some things are cool, like the, uh, you know, the body, bodily organ and things like that. But for Nestor particularly, I think this yeah. might be the strongest sense of what the chapter is about, this being kind of history, the nature of history. Mm-hmm. So I thought, um, I don't know, there, there, there's two questions, I think, that kind of, hover around the subject area in this chapter for me. One is, what is kind of the philosophy of history that one should kind of employ as a scholar intellectual, right? How should we see history? And the other one is, um, how does your personal history work or kind of um, kind of meld with that kind of larger con- conception of history? Specifically, how does Stephen see his own kind of personal history work according to a particular schema um, and I, I think the way that this is handled as a kind of as kind of parallel problems that, that intersect in places is pretty staggering. Um, you know what you see him as a kind of public persona teaching versus what happens in his mind. You know, uh, given the, the the distinctive conversations he's having with the older generation versus the younger generation, there, there's so much kind of intellectual play when it comes to the nature of history going on here. That being said, well, yes. I was just going to say, I think you've laid it out wonderfully. Um, oh, thank you. And, and the, so let's close shop and we're done. But uh, <laughs> uh, the fact that this is Nestor's episode, you know, the uh, the, the windbag of the Iliad, the, the Homeric hero that saw three generations beforehand, it's perfect for this, this analysis of or meditation on what is history. But, uh, yeah, Joe, I think you do a nice job of... Uh, tying it all together of the fact that you've got first Stephen with the kids, you know, for the kids, they have a different notion of what history is for them. History is that kind of traditional sense of just names and dates, you know, for Stephen, you know, he's, while they're trying to muster what the right information is and what the right answer is, he, he's meditating on, well, what is the nature of history? You know, that those, uh, I think we had talked about before we pushed record those those you know interior monologues that he has with himself about the nature of uh, history are fantastic. I mean, you can read those over and over again, trying to 
make sense of what he's saying and you know never come up with the answer even though Aristotle tries to answer it even though Blake has an answer for it they're almost these unanswerable questions yeah um, so so let's talk about Nestor a little bit uh, you called him the uh, blowhard of the Iliad yeah he's, which I recall but he's not so much a blowhard in the Odyssey no he just he gives his uh, gives his spiel he, he gives us the background of uh of Agamemnon and his betrayal by Clytemnestra when Agamemnon returns, which gives kind of a, a possible caveat for what might happen to the Odysseus story. But he doesn't really give, um, he's not able to give Telemachus much helpful information other than to say, yeah, I, I, I was with a few of the other heroes, we got separated, you ought to check out Menelaus. Menelaus, Menelaus right. might have more information. Take my chariot. Take my uh, take my son with you, and then yeah. he goes on his way. I saw more importance of Nestor for like Iliad symbolism. You mm-hmm. know, like I was seeing, like I remember he comes in early on, and he doesn't he kind of serve as like a bit of an organizing principle yeah. between the feud of Agamemnon and, and Achilles, right? Yeah. Ultimately, though, I, I don't think he's helpful in that. I mean, no. the only way Achilles is going to come back to battle is for his own reasons with uh, Patroclus. But, yeah, I think it's fair to say that he is definitely characterized with some mild fun. There's very little fun in the Iliad, but there's some mild fun at Nestor's expense. Expense, rather. His speeches are long-winded. He is definitely speaking like an old person who has prior knowledge. Hmm. Right, but it's, so it, it's, it's, he's full of wisdom, but not much practical advice. Right? Yeah, I don't. I, I haven't. Read, I mean, I haven't read the Iliad in yeah. years, so I, I don't know that I can answer that. I think, you know, the DZ character. There's, you know, I think you have examples. So where, oh, sorry. I, I think DZ sounds more like the Nestor of the Iliad yeah. than he does the Odyssey. I think that's painting the Nestor of the Iliad like too harshly because yeah. DZ is full of uh, misinformation. You know, he's uh, giving advice that is completely unsolicited. So if anything, DZ is definitely you know parody of Nestor, but pulling on that theme of somebody that has lived for a long time and and thinks they know what's what in the world. In the Odyssey, though, um, Nestor is very deferential to to Telemachus, right? He uh, admires his advice, his kind of moxie for what he's done. I, I think far more so than DZ does for for. Um, Stephen, mm-hmm. um, you know, and again, I don't think that's a problem. I don't think these things have to equal up one to one. But um, oh, well, well, then take Telemachus. I mean, the Telemachus to Nestor and Stephen to Deasy are completely different. Yeah. Yes, Stephen is polite, but right. in his mind, he's mocking, dismissive, and whatnot. Tom, yeah, exactly. I just think it's a straight up like he's just flipping it upside down. Yeah, because right? he's I giving agree. misinformation. He's he's a complete buffoon, basically. And you know, Stephen as the to, as the Telemachus. Uh, sort of person he's looking for answers he's looking for wisdom and he walks out of there realizing that you know there's nothing that this person could give me at all the person's just a clown right what, one of the earliest images we get of Nestor is him coming in and having a group of boys kind of surround him who are looking it seemed like the boys had a problem with their game and they were looking to him to kind of offer some kind of answer as to what should happen and I got this image of the opening of Iliad when he comes in to try to stop the feud between mm-hmm. Agamemnon and Achilles. And they even one of the th- words that's used to describe him is the bleaching, uh, bleaching the honey of his ill-dyed head. And ill-dyed is one word, and I thought how much that sounded like Iliad. 
ill die. Ill ah, that's interesting. You know, and I was like, oh man. And then that image just popped into my head. Like, here's the nester trying to balance, you know, the feuding kids who, you know, are fighting over a girl and can't seem to, like, you know, make up. Um, so I kind of read Nestor. I, I kept going. I started looking more into the Iliad than I was thinking of the Odyssey. But yeah. then, then in contrast, though, I, I think that's that's really clever. I like the detail, though, that one of the first things he says, you know, what is it now? He cried continually without listening. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's not even bothered yeah. to listen. Yeah, no, it, it's having fun with him, certainly. And so, you know, I, I don't want to harp on this every time, but like when we talked about Telemachus and the, uh, the milk woman, um, I think those, those, those problems of, representa- of symbolic representation are important, right? Because they lead us to, I think, Joyce's message that's a modern message as opposed to the kind of ancient, you know, message that Homer or whoever is doing. So in this case... I think, and this is why I want to talk about this first, in this case I think Joyce is trying to talk about the idea of history not being a kind of, holding solid answers for us in Mm -hmm. a kind of modern world, in in the way it used to. I mean, I imagine in Homeric times, you went to the old wise person, and what they said had some kind of, you know, maybe not 100%, but but largely was full of objective authority Mm -hmm. that guided you well. I mean, all of our heroes go and seek dead people and old people, Um, you know, Tiresias, who is ageless, you know because they hold the answers. This does not seem to be the case anymore in a kind of modern um, European world, right? The modernists have given up on this. They're moving towards relativ- a relativism, right? Also, Stephen can find the answers in himself probably more readily than he can find them in outside authority figures. Yeah. Go ahead, Dave. Well, I was just going to say it was interesting because when Mr. Deasy says one of the more complicated things, I think, from a, a modern moral perspective when he started to talk about how women were the problem of all men right. the Stephen's response is well sir and you get a sense like he's going to get up from the table and leave the discussion mm-hmm. like almost like he was turned off by what Mr. Deasy was saying and he, and he realized that very thing that somehow the ancient you know perhaps wisdom doesn't work for him anymore well, it's the early 20th century. Right. Just think about everything becoming so democratized, number one. Everybody's r- removed uh, or challenged your tradition. So you're moving into a century of it's, it's, it's a novelty that no one's ever experienced before, unlike the start of the 19th century, you could argue, because now whatever changes were done in a cosmopolitan setting, it's, it's been washed across the continent. It's been washed across North America, you could say. Yeah, I mean, World War One is around the corner. Yeah, Nobody knows how it's going to start. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, it's, so, it's, it's this kind of, like, authorityless war that's, that's its own animal. Like, I feel like Joyce is is hitting these things, like, feeling them out, you know? So, so why put your faith in the elders? Exactly. This is what the elders have done. And, uh, yeah, in 1914, 15, like, this is all getting done as he's watching this unfold. Yeah, there's a great article, uh, Nestor and the Nightmare, <laughs> the Presence of the Great War in Ulysses. He's composing this, we think, in 1917, when you're already yeah. several years in the war. Isn't that late? Yeah, oh, well, that's, that's thinking, what the thought yeah, is. Closer to the and beginning. if you Me think too. about it, um, you know, others have made this point, you know, you've got DZ as kind of the the completely oblivious general who's just sending men into the meat mm-hmm. yeah, right, into the right. meat grinder. You got a boy named Sergeant that right. Stephen then sends back to the mock battle hockey game that's simultaneously oh, going and on all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so Right, no, I, I think that's it, right? That this is um, a kind of commentary on modern politics and war and you know how how 
any kind of traditional standard for answering the problems of the day is kind of it all comes uh, unavailable. Out, it all comes out like a hollow shell. I mean, what is the right. image that comes up repeatedly and then goes on into Proteus? It's shells and coins, and you know the, all the various uses of shells for money, for symbols and whatnot. But they all come out hollow. You know, it's right. all just shells of if you want to get esoteric you know think about you know shells is basically we're casting off our shells past lives and shells and whatnot and that brings in you know a theme that's going to come in very soon with metempsychosis and whatnot yeah well i mean this is all over other modernist texts too right you talk hollow you think hollow men Mm -hmm. elliot right you think like i think a lot of these stream and stream of consciousness um you know, uh, related thought processes that Stephen has sound a lot like Yeats' uh, Second Coming, mm-hmm. things like that, you know, which is apocalyptic and comments on the nature of World War One and yeah. all this stuff. Well, yeah. you've got the apocalyptic imagery right from the start with yeah. The, yeah. the hints of Blake. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, yeah, so, I, I mean, I, I I think those those schema that are laid out Gifford, right, Gilbert. Gilbert. And, Why do you keep saying Gilbert? That Gilbert and others, um, I, I, I mean, I think they're useful as starting off points. But, I mean, you know, just like you, like we were talking about last time with the, uh, the, the analogies to Homer and all of that, I think they're, it's only valuable if it can kind of get you yeah. into kind of the, the, the more important thematics that yeah. I think they do. I mean, like I the, the, yeah, the important yeah. symbol that's identified, I think, in Gilbert, because there's a few of them floating around, for Telemachus that we didn't talk about, you know, directly is air, you know, inheritance. How oh, Stephen right, yeah. has, you know, like Telemachus, yeah, like Stephen, like Telemachus, is, you know, the usurpers who are taking his his place, you know, and yeah, I don't think any of them are kind of, you look at and say, oh, that makes no sense. If anything, they their sin is that they're so direct, like, Okay, yeah, I get it that that's history is the theme of Nestor. I don't need somebody to spell it out for me. But I think with some of the more interesting ones, like if you really do want to take the body analogy that begins with uh, once we get Leopold Bloom, you know, then it's you know, that there's something you could do with that. You know, you've got a novel that's creating the human body, starting with its digestive system and. Actually, I guess kidneys aren't part of the digestive system. Right? Think, Isn't the kidney kidneys, the pur- kidneys, um, It's like I, the purification, right? Words, They're getting yeah, rid of yeah. waste. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll talk well, about that later. I love that one of the <laughs> nested, one of DZ's lines, uh, he said something like, what, we're all king's sons or yeah. something like that. Yeah. And then Stephen's response line. to it is, alas. Yeah. Alas. <laughs> um, by the way, since you mentioned the body, the body elements, the organ thing, they don't really exist in the, tw- the first yeah they're not yeah uh, it's only it begins with the uh, calypso yeah I guess so that's that's just a bloom thing I guess because yeah. why is that because Stephen is bloom is so very bodily and Stephen is intellectual right we've always said that that Stephen right is, is always trying to reject the material yeah. and and move towards the ethereal yeah I think that's right yeah okay all right, so um, I, I love like starting into the text, um, the the exchange with the students, and I think we alluded to this last time that Stephen is not a good teacher in the least. <laughs> we are all teachers to uh, certain extents here. But there's and no self. He's not deluding himself. No, at no, least, no. At least he realizes it. I appreciate that. I, I there's nothing worse than a teacher that um, is bad and doesn't know it. You know what I mean? I, yeah. like, I totally appreciate a teacher that understands that they're on the take or something, which totally <laughs> exists. He declares himself a, a learner yes. when asked if this is his, his future profession. Yeah. yeah. So, so what is it? I mean, because, 
So here's the thing. I get it from a 2016 perspective. I'm supposed to know that Steven is a bad teacher because he is dealing in the objective, right? He wants them to know dates and names and, you know, just kind of rote understanding of history. Mm-hmm. From our perspective, that's silly, right? We want analysis. We, mm-hmm. want, um, we want them to grapple with the ideas of, of uh, causation and find it problematic, we want Stephen to do what he's do, doing in his head. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. From the perspective of whatever, you know, 1916 or whenever, you know, Joyce is writing this, I would think that that's a pretty radical idea, that most mm-hmm. education is still pretty much entrenched in the idea of fact-based objectivity. You, well, you're basically churning out, I mean, I know this is anachronistic, but you're churning out soldiers, right? You don't want right. them to think for themselves. Yeah, no, of course not. Right? Yeah. And uh, I think, though, to say that Stephen wants them to give the right dates, I think Steve, it's more than that. Stephen's just going through the motions. Like, he doesn't even, he doesn't even really care. Yeah. I don't even know, like, Stephen, you know, for, for all of his learning, you know, it's clear that even he's looking down at the book to make sure that the Battle <laughs> of Asculum occurred in 279. Where do you get that? Well, it says when, he, when uh, Cochrane says, I forgot the place, sir, 279. Asculum, Stephen said, glancing at the name oh, and yeah, date yeah, yeah. in the Gorsgard book. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, Gorsgard is amazing. Yeah. Gorsgard. Well, even right. if you do take it just at its basic meaning of filthy, you do have the word gore in there, which yeah. then goes on. I mean, I'm assuming that that's supposed to be read at two different levels, right? I, I think dirty and filthy, but also... Well, I think it's about the... Like, it's a history book. Yeah. History yeah, is full, full of, of gore. Blood, yeah. and, and you have all that. But also the... Um, I mean, Stephen is essentially setting them... Like, doing their a little catechism here, right? With with the students. Like, That's the... So it's funny you use that word because in the, <laughs> the schema that he gave to uh, Gilbert for the... I think it's the technique that this uses. Like, the technique of Telemachus oh. is narrative young. Okay. And the technique of this is... Catechism, young oh. versus I think young, but catechism definitely, and then of course we get a real catechism with Ithaca. In Ithaca, yeah. which is a mirror, mm-hmm. we're being the penultimate right. chapter. It's a mirror to the second chapter. Yeah. Oh, that's really that's that's interesting. Yeah, but um, I mean, in that case, you know, this little catechism with the students. I mean, how much is he gore scarring them? You know, in terms <laughs> of the kind of uh, intellectual abuse of you know, who, uh, poor Cochrane. That yeah. or, or who's the one that um, the one waiter that doesn't know anything? Uh, Armstrong. Armstrong. Yeah. Yeah. Poor Armstrong. I mean, he's humiliating them. And then what about Common? Common three times in these first two pages tries to get in, and Stephen just dismisses ah. him. Like yeah. I. You know, as as teachers, this th- these three pages or four pages or so of Stephen interacting with students, I think, have more meaning for us on a personal level in that sense. Like, because I see that right away. Like, wait, what about Common? Common's trying to get in there, but also part of me is thinking, oh, Common, God, those kids that just uh, won't yeah. keep their hand down. <laughs> what a pain in the ass! Yeah. At all. Yeah. Um, you, you, are you saying that most um, uh, teaching theory is not worthwhile, Josh? I'm shocked by that. <laughs> um, yeah, that I mean, yeah, the, the one word that kind of evokes so much is uh, is very interesting. But but I mean, as opposed to that first big paragraph where we get you know his thought process, I, I love this so much. Fabled by the daughters of memory, and yet it was in some way, if not as memory fabled it, a phrase then of impatience, thud of Blake's wings of excess. I hear the ruin of all space. 
shattered glass and toppled masonry and in time one livid final flame what's left us then right that that toppled masonry and shattered glass doesn't that sound like yates mm-hmm. I, I mean i didn't read that anywhere like that right the uh, mm-hmm. and and it's all trojan war imagery and all of this i feel like there's something happening there i, mean, I can't really pinpoint it's cool but um so i i I spent a lot of time on this, just kind of thinking it through before I gave up and started uh, reading commentaries on it. But um, here's how we're supposed to understand this, I think, right? That there's two ways to understand history. A kind of objective way and a subjective way, I think, right? Blake is, Blake's Wings of Excess, right? Apparently refers to some kind of objective sense of it. And Stephen is dismissing that and saying, no, that's too pat. Am I, am I on the right track here? The fabled um, daughters of memory, right? If history is a fabled daughters of memory, then it becomes more subjective. It becomes a, a narrative. A fable is a construct, right? It's not objective. Well, daughters of memory are the muses, muses. right? Yeah. And so it's a tale. It's a history tale. as a tale, it's, as it's, a narrative. It's something woven, right? I think he, later on he says, you know, weave, uh, weave yeah. the winds, you know, that that's what history is. It, it's this this story that that um, is is probably not kind of solid fact, mm-hmm. right? Blake, I'm not sure, but Blake seems to be implying that it is solid fact. So that seems to be the kind of um, dichotomy that's laid out to us early on and I think that gets complicated along the way. Am I off on all this? Well, I, I don't know enough about Blake to be able to say it, but if, if that's the case, then it makes sense to say thud after impatience, right? Because it's you know, it lands with a thud as not satisfying. Right, yeah. I, he's going to hold Blake to task, I think. Right, he's, he's basically saying um, um, I mean the wings of excess, right? That he's being excessive. He's being hyperbolic about it. You know, that it, it's more nuanced than Blake is, is laying out. Perhaps. Yeah, I can't remember. I looked it up. I can't remember what the exact Blake reference is. Well, there's, uh, if I understand correctly, there's two things there. There's uh, two quotes that he is conflating. You know, Joyce on purpose, Stephen perhaps not on purpose. But as far as interpretation, I'm, I'm coming up short. Here's a... Uh, Here's what Gifford has to say. Blake's Wings of Excess, a compound of the two proverbs of hell from Blake's The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Quote, the road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. That's one. And two, no bird soars too high if he soars with his own wings. Acres. Mm -hmm. Say it again. No bird soars too high if he soars with his own wings. Huh. Not not wings made. His own wings. This is sounding like... uh, like our dead man conversation mm. all those months ago yeah, with, with all the Blake, Blake references. Yeah. It happens later on, too. Oh, dude, that was a cool movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think what's interesting, though, is how the narrative voice so subtly... Inter- and, and I think Josh brought this up last podcast, how the narrative voice so subtly interrupts the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting is that this little phrase, that you, this little paragraph, Joe, you brought up comes right after the boy staring out the window, right? So in a way, I'm wondering, like, is, does this narrative voice get attributed to that boy's consciousness? Like, is he fabled by the daughters of memory? And of course, he's young, so you'd think that that's not the case. But I feel like there is a little bit of a kind of duality, like in some ways that this applies to all people. Um, and yet, the second sentence that begins with, and yet, 
seems to contradict it, right? And yet it was in some way, if not as memory, fabled it. I kind of feel like he's just setting up a kind of hypothesis here as to, you know, where wh- where does our present knowledge come from? If it comes from our stories, well, our stories get confused by stories our memories. Right, exactly. Right. And then our memories get confused by our stories. It becomes a kind of like yeah, web I ju- of... I, I just, I took, maybe I'm too simplistic on those first two sentences. I take it as, <laughs> all right, so... Yeah, the story of Pyrrhus is we now have a set yes. narrative for it, right? Exactly. What is every every kid remembers they know the story of Pyrrhus. They remember, you know, one more victory like that and we're done for. You know, they that's that's all you need to know for Pyrrhus. You you know, put a pin on it, you're done. And so that's the memory. But then Stephen says, wait a minute, no, and yet it was in some way not as memory fable. Like it, it that's too simplistic. Like it's right. that you know, is history only a story that we tell? No, of course not. There was so like it was different. Right. You know, well, you'll never know what it was like. Pierce had was a man that had emotions and right. motivations that were interior that we could never understand. And yet, how do we then understand it? It might as well be the kid has no idea. You know, it's you know I can't remember the place. And then Stephen's interior comment on that is you know it could be any general, any battle. And then I think he starts to see okay, so if we look, can never recover the actual objective details that happened then you have this blurring, right? I think he's meditating on that idea that all time is... It's very Blakean, in fact. I would say, in addition to Yeats, you know, I would say it's more like Blake's vision of apocalypse, you know, all time just crashing down like masonry because you, you never can actually recover the facts themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I don't, I'm not saying that Stephen or Joyce is on the other side of Blake. I, I mean, I think, I, I think ultimately, I mean, we'll get there, but he comes down on it like his own kind of sense of what history is, but it as completely subjective, I think. Mm-hmm. But um, but there, you're right. Um, Blake is apocalyptic, but there is a sense of kind of objectivity in it, right? Blake and Dreezy aren't that far off from each other, right? Uh, Dreezy says later that... Dizzy. Oh, Dizzy. All of history is moving towards a meeting with God or whatever it is. Yeah, towards a goal, the manifestation There's a goal. of There's, God. In, I think, both... Blake and Deasy, even though I don't think they have the same intentions, there's a deterministic element involved. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Right? Yeah, there, there's... Everything is set and unchangeable. It's, and Stephen is is challenging that notion. Right. He's not saying that Blake's 100% wrong. He's just saying he's hyperbolic. Well, well, no. I would say that he, I think he's he, he's rejecting Deasy's vision of predestination like that. I know I'm using that loosely, not predestination no, right. in the, the religious sense, but in the sense of like hard all history. Like. Exactly. And I think if history in that sense then is is that nightmare from which Stephen wants to awake, right? Because then everything is predetermined. He's born with a he's born with a national identity. He's born with a religion. And all of these things for him are, I mean, he keeps using that that notion of gotta get past that net in portrait. Here it's a noose. And he comes right out and says, yeah. I have to break through these nooses. Yeah, before the conversation with Deezy really even gets underway, Stephen is feeling stifled in that study, looking at you know, all of the things that are carefully packaged, you know, the 12 apostles in their mm-hmm. spoon case and the Stuart coins in their case and whatnot. He's already feeling stifled. And if everything really is moving towards a predetermined goal, his reaction is, well, I, I don't want that goal. I want to jump out. Ten years earlier, didn't people think time was some absolute truth, you know, that, that it existed only as it is and, and wasn't relative? Well, I, I think... The problem, we have a generational issue here, right? Um, 
that really is on either side of the Einstein, right? right, and relativity, and all of these new modernist sensibilities that are coming to the fore, right? Yeah. Deasy is an old Victorian that can't speak the language of the modernist Stephen before him. And that comes up beautifully when he's fumbling with the typewriter and trying to erase yeah. something. I felt so much tension in the second half of the, of the Deasy scene between, like, modern world, you know, uh, organization, what is it, organizations, finances, merchants, typewriters, uh, schools... Versus, like, the old mythos of, you know, battles and King's Sons mm-hmm. and Cassandra and all these other right. references that are pulling you back and somehow Stephen being stuck in, in that world. I kind of feel like early on that, that paragraph you brought up is interesting because stories are kind of connected to time, right? Because they come from a time past and we hold them with us. But, of course, they have to evolve over time because... At some point, we didn't even record things. Mm-hmm. You know, they had to have evolved, and that's sometimes when you know, you know, when we're teaching mythology, uh, you know, some of those stories are hard to really explain because they're so crazy and ridiculous. And I feel like you know, part of that early is a uh, reference was a commentary a little bit on stories and how what truth can they really hold for us? You know, at some point in time. And I would say, ironically, that. Even though um, we can't understand uh, Pyrrhus and is it Pyrrhus? Pyrrhus, Pyrrhus I'm saying it right. Pyrrhus and you know what he was going through that moment, whatever. It actually does relate back to Stephen as much, right? As much mm-hmm. as he resists, you know, understanding the truth of Pyrrhus and what he went through. Stephen has suffered a Pyrrhic victories, mm-hmm. right? Uh, him moving. Um, to the continent and then being defeated, you know, um, there's something Pyrrhic about that. So, I I mean, I think that's Joyce as opposed to Stephen playing a little game of, of, you know, Stephen, you know, you're a bit of a smart ass. You think you have all the answers, but really, you know, the the other side exists as well. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's, it's too simplistic to say that this is a rejection of predeterminism and that's all that are, (coughs) all that is. Yeah. 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 I, it's so complicated, though. Yeah. Like, when you get into these levels, and then you have the other level of him trying to do this very same thing he's rejecting to his students. Right. Right? Because that's... Yeah. Well, right, essentially, so, he's he's doing the opposite of what his mind is thinking. What, so, uh, uh, Tom excellent... Said what was that? Tom said that before. If only Stephen could do what he was actually thinking. Right. Yeah, 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 mind, yeah. Yeah. Uh, An excellent point that's made in this article that I mentioned earlier, of uh, Nestor and the Nightmare of the Presence of the Great War and Ulysses, is... If, if that's the case, then Stephen is, I mean, if you, if you read this in the context of World War I, Stephen is like that middle management officer who is put in a position where you've yeah, got yeah, yeah. DZ sending all the people to their death. And Stephen actually there at the front line, who actually is the person saying, you know, Sergeant, no, you've got to go back and die. You, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. you go back. And Stephen is caught in between those two generations. That's great. I think that's great. Yeah, right? check it out. I just found it oh. out online. Yeah. Wow. The, the, the internet, yeah. man. It's talk about new technology. What is this? The it's internet? The, yeah, the you what? I'll tell you about it. You after just the type www and you can get anything you want. Say that again. W what? W three W's. Oh wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, I, it didn't even the the sergeant. You know, as a name, that didn't even dawn on me. But no, I mean, um, 
So then we, we get into, uh, I love this conversation of a pier versus a bridge. Right. I think, so first off, the, the just pure genius of getting there, like, mnemonically, like, you know, um, the kid that's half paying attention, you know, what, a pier, is that where it's a pier? Yeah, and what the, these the kids all have a little bit of Latin, so pierus, I mean, us is yeah. the stereotypical Latin ending, so pierus, oh, I guess a pier. I, I, are we but, talking about Pierre? But then the fact that that then goes back to Stephen's own different, very different sexual awakening, you know, with the idea of Kingston Pier being right. a, or I guess it's Kingstown, I want to say Kingston like Jamaica, Kingstown Pier being a place like many seaside piers, you know, where kids have their first dalliances mm-hmm. with the opposite sex. And as soon as Kingstown Pier is mentioned by, uh, who is it, Armstrong, yeah, those kids that were giggling before are no longer giggling at his expense. Expense, rather, they're giggling because of, oh yeah, we know about Kingstown Pier. The words trouble their gaze. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, that the words trouble their gaze. Isn't that when Stephen well, Stephen has his uh, you know phrase a disappointed peer, right? right? But uh, I love how this brings us right back to Stephen at the end of, I guess, chapter two of Portrait, comparing his own sexual awakening, which seems to have bypassed completely all the harmless flirting, because you get the sense Stephen lives so much in his own mind that he never could really relate to girls. It went right to prostitution. He didn't have that kind of fun, right? So what is his way of fun, perhaps not the right word, but that those kind of innocent experiences. So when he says, yes, they knew, had never learned, nor ever been innocent, you know, compared to him of just plunging right into it, right? Yeah. He, he never had that experience of, you know, re- you know, wrestling with the girls on the piers. So do you think he, he believes he's better off for that or worse off? I think he's, I think he's envious. I think he, right. I, yeah, that's what I, was I think he, he's looking, because again, history, like you, you began this whole uh, discussion, Joe, how this wonderfully blends thoughts on history to Stephen's own history. Right. You know, that experience between him and um, Sargent, you know, when he, he initially is repulsed by Sargent and his apparent weakness, but then sees himself in Sargent, right? right? And then, of course, then we get the mother again. Well, all of these things, whether it's, you know, Haynes or the mother, anything he's talking about in the past is now put into, like, high relief because of that first exchange yeah. and the dubiousness of history. I think Joyce wants us now to question everything, everything. on Stephen's mind, which mm-hmm. is, you well, know, kind of nightmarish if you're trying to do an objective reading. You know? th- think about Stephen at the end of Portrait. I'm sorry, um, at the end of Part 4 in Portrait. Mm-hmm. You know, the kids were playing on the beach. He had a girl there. He could have you know, f- mm-hmm. frolicked and played. But what he did, he turned her into a bird and then ran <laughs> off. You know, it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. he chose to kind of, I mean, didn't we even say this? Like he almost like self-isolated at times. Yes. You know? Oh, there's no doubt. And and what happens because of that, he's stuck in this kind of place of limbo where he doesn't understand things because he's not connected to people. He really doesn't understand in some ways, you know, perhaps how to really engage these kids as a teacher and even says, I'm a learner, right? Yeah. I'm not. Yeah. Well, I, I think this this um, metaphor of the pier versus the bridge actually becomes like an interesting metaphor for how we treat history, yeah, right? You know, point. is it a place that we go to, and, uh, and th- that actually brings us to a different land or a different understanding, or is it a place that stops and then we have to kind of um, fill in the gap in between and kind of wonder and use our subjective imagination? God, I mean, I don't want to make it too too. Uh 
one for one with symbolism and whatnot, but think about building bridges in World War One. I know World War Two for sure, but you know, you wanted to get tanks over into other places. The only place to do that is to build a bridge, right? So that you know, when you think about the modernization of warfare and 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 society, building bridges take on all sorts of of relevance that they just probably didn't have in the world of boats and you know, sailing around the world. Yeah, yeah. And oh, go ahead. Well, I no. If you want to talk about that, I just want to ask a quick question about Pyrrhus. Isn't isn't Pyrrhus the guy who kills King Priam in the Iliad? No, no, no. Cause, That's, cause, uh, yes. Because what comes no, up in Hamlet? You, no, you, you, are, you are correct. They're, they're completely different people. So the person that kills Priam is... This is Pyrrhus. Yeah. Is, he has two names. Oh. Yeah, in, history, in mythology and history. Um, and in the Aeneid, where that actually shows up. Because in the, the Iliad, Aeneid. it doesn't actually happen. No. But yeah, we know that Priam ultimately does die. Virgil's Aeneid actually has a whole book dedicated to the fall of Troy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's Achilles' son who has confusingly two names. Uh, One is Pyrrhus, expelled oh. exactly like our guy Pyrrhus yeah. here, and the other name is Neoptolemus. Okay. But, but it is a different when figure. The, oh, that's interesting. When the players come in Act 2 of Hamlet, he asked the guy to recite the, the death of King Priam, and Pyrrhus was the sword yeah, yeah, that yeah. you know plunges into. Oh, that's right. I wasn't even yeah. And I saw. So I thought it was that, and then you know that was kind of throwing me off. Yeah, this is By the it. way, that shows a little bit of the dubious nature too of Could history. Be. You know, yeah. this idea that you know here I am. I'm trying to understand who these people are, and yet they have the same name. Yeah. They only have one word names here. And, and now that you <laughs> mention it, you have a young upstart that is slaying a. An established authority figure in Priam. Yeah, I mean that that works right in with the uh, the dynamics here. And Cassandra was brought up later, and I, I yeah. read that it's King Priam's daughter. Yeah. Well, Cassandra is the one that is cursed with truth speaking, but nobody will believe her. Believe her, mm. right? Which is probably the most maddening thing I can imagine. Zeus like spits in her mouth or something like that. Is that what it is? Yeah, something yeah. like that. It yeah. is terrible. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, it's horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> and when I mean um, it, I actually I just saw Troas and Cressida performed uh, you know the Shakespeare play and you know that's a, a, a Trojan War story and she comes out with like just this like high emotion just begging people not to go to their death and they all just treat her like she's a clown yeah. and it's so heartbreaking and tragic oh, and uh, but the, yeah that's that's her tragic that's in the Shakespearean play that's in the yeah that's in the it's, play it's, it's in the Indian it's, it's, it's part of the tradition it's yeah. part of her depiction but um, the oh what was my I lost my train of thought <laughs> I don't know <laughs> I think you're about to talk about Brad Pitt and Troy I, am, I, I haven't seen it did you see it <laughs> no comment I was actually going to talk about Haynes next um, <laughs> because attached to all this now you get Stephen's immediate um connection to Haynes' chapbook yeah. and what that means, tying all of the kind of, um, you know, imperialist things that he was mm-hmm. thinking about from just like an hour before yeah. into this conversation about history. The conversation with Haynes comes back a few times in this, and I think the most telling thing that Haynes says in Telemachus, which will haunt this whole novel, is especially this chapter, is it seems history is to blame. Yeah. Right, and exactly. Stephen actually quotes that again when he in his mind at least when he's with DZ but that that's like the ultimate intro to this particular chapter Do you have history a page on that? uh in uh, Telemachus yeah. it's when uh, they're having the conversation about you know I suppose an Irishman must feel that way I believe Mulligan's swimming and they're walking toward him it's that conversation oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's well 
Oh, fine. Don't remember. But when he says for, for Haynes' chapbook, right, he's basically asking, well, do I sell that to him? Right? Is that another commodity? Like, you know, my mm. thoughts as commodity. And it strikes me that what's the difference between him selling his thoughts for Haynes and him selling his thoughts for the kids before him, mm. right? That are in a school that is run by DZ, who is this, you know, loyal, loyal, loyalist, mm-hmm. right? And, um, you know, apologist for the British crown. It doesn't seem to be that much different. Well, I don't think it, I don't think we're meant to, I think they're all viewed by Stephen as usurpers of some kind. Right. But he's taking money here and he didn't before, right? He, he fought, in Telemachus, he foiled Mulligan's plan to kind of coax him into getting money for being, I guess, a... Oh, I don't think intentionally so. I think he would gladly, you know, get some free drinks or whatnot from Haynes if he could. And I get the sense that when he's going to uh, speak to him, when he sends, says to, to pierce the polished mail of his mind or something to that effect... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get the sense... A gesture that the, at the court of his master. I mean, Right, but when he, you know... I get the sense the fact that's going to be a mid-wild drink. You know, who's going to be paying for those drinks? I mean, I suppose Stephen's got his uh, monthly wages, but if Haynes is there, then, you know, I think the hope is that Haynes is going to buy him a drink for it. But that then still puts him in that demeaning role of being just a mere jester in servitude to a, you know, to a monarch, if you will. But there's a difference, right? Mulligan's fine with that. Right? Like, he has no qualms about it at all. Stephen has qualms about yeah. it. And I sure. got the impression in Telemachus that that's why Mulligan kicks him under the table, right? Because Stephen is almost willfully, like, foiling yeah. that. Like, you know, he'd rather have the kind of um, high ground in terms of I see moral what you're saying. He, uh, he doesn't want to be the, you know, the, the hired... Uh, he doesn't want to be Richard Pryor in the toy. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh... The jester at the court of his master. I'm taking that from you. You bring up that movie all the time. <laughs> I think the, the toy. Are we talking about the yeah. toy? Maybe in the car. Yeah, that's in the car. That's that's, that's what put in my mind. Maybe for a future uh, catalog. Yeah. The toy is a very interesting, um, I think, play of of slavery dynamics and what it means to be a sellout in uh, modern America. I think there's a lot to learn from the toy. Mm. Underrated <laughs> film, maybe. <laughs> That in the, <laughs> the same way that Trading Places is an underrated film about class dynamics. <laughs> totally, totally is. All right, what are we talking about now? Uh, Nestor, I believe. Nestor, what about Milton? Uh, it's it's a great way to have another ghost story brought in. Wait, before we before we get to Milton, I love the you know when Stephen is basically done with the history, and it's pretty clear that he's yeah. done with the history. And it seems to be completely dictated by the fact that the students are done with the history. Yeah. When they, they interrupt him. You Nobody know, gives a shit that yeah. this lesson is over. The fact they request a ghost story, right? Which seems natural to students. But again, if you're already thinking, like, what is history? History is a tale of, of ghosts and just how the mm-hmm. dead oppress the living through history. Stephen has already been oppressed by his memories of his mother and whatnot and the history that he is born with. And then, of course, what is the next assignment, which seems to be completely at random. Like, you get the sense that he just picks up a book, and and the fact that he, as teacher, doesn't even know where they are in this particular book and says, okay, where are we in this? And then, of course, it's... uh, you know, how do you say, Lysidas or Lysidas? Uh, Lysidas, I Lysidas, okay. And which is, of course, a, a mournful elegy of a well, I guess it's not more in folks we're supposed to say weep no more for this drowned person. Yeah. But again, it's a, another, you know, it's another ghost, if you will, and it's another drowned man. Yeah. We've already had the drowned man from Telemachus. 
right? The the man that's out. That's gonna be one of the recurring themes in the. I almost said the Iliad mm. in Ulysses, yeah. the you know, the drowned man, which of course brings up Mulligan. He's gonna be thinking about Mulligan, the fact that Mulligan saved drowned men. So, you know, these are all themes that are woven in so nicely, yeah, so exactly. perfectly, right? In in a naturalistic setting, yeah. in a realistic way. Um, so two things I have. The first thing is that I like that, that Stephen moves to literature when he's exasperated mm-hmm. with history, right? That there, there seems to be a kind of um, release or a truth that, that uh, I, I think all poetry particularly, but, but literature, right, kind of basks in its own sense of subjectivity in a way that history is um, kind of self-consciously always trying to prove its objectivity. Right. You know what I mean? Like you talk to a historian and they, I'm being very blanket here, but, but I, I always get the sense that they're trying to sell me that they're a scientist in a way, right? Where I think um, most writers and artists are unabashedly subjective, right? Particularly the romantics and particularly Milton in this poem. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't you think that's a modernist, a modern kind of... Uh uh, 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 idea, not idea, but like trope that that you have a historian who thinks it's an objective science. Like I wonder if that's oh. how people treated history throughout time. No, I mean when you right? if you if you go back to the the debate between Thucydides and Herodotus, you know yeah. we think of Herodotus as the father of history with his account of the Persian Wars. Thucydides, who comes what like a generation later, says, "Look, that guy. He said he was a historian." But, uh, you know, he's an armchair historian. Let me show you what history really is. History is facts. I'm going to be factual. I'm going to get this stuff down right. You know, and so for Thucydides, he thought of himself as, like Joe said, like a scientist, that this is, you know, this is empirical evidence. This is not something that is subjective. Of course, you know, in that genre, you've got speeches that are completely composed by the historian when he was never there. But at least us, us. Also, Herodotus is a far better read. Yeah, you know, Herodotus is much more fun because it's, it's, yeah, it's, right. it's, uh, it's like fables, if you will. Yeah, it's yeah. these crazy stories. One but but to, to your point, I, I think that the, the idea of, I, I think Joe's right, that the idea is histor- history tends to be, or not tends to be, is presented as these are the facts, this is what happened. And then it's the job of the artist to take the objective truths and turn them into universal sort yes. of truths about all of us. And I, that's the difference between Stephen and, and everybody else. Yes. And that, was, that gets to the second point I wanted to make, which is what uh, Lysidius is actually doing, right? It's taking um, Milton's buddy yep. right, and moving him into heroic status, right? right? The same way that... Adonis did for who wrote Adonis? Uh, uh, Shelley. Shelley's like Adonis, right? Yeah. That you, you you take the mundane and you mythologize it. That's what Milton's doing here, right? I mean, Stephen seems so much more comfortable with that kind of mechanism than he does with history, or you know, um, even when, when you know the next scene when he's going to be doing the math problems on the board and thinks of it as a dance, right? He's artifying all mm-hmm. of these objective things. Well, Deasy does that too, right? I mean, what I thought interesting is how when he's paying Stephen, he makes a reference to Othello, right? Put money in thy purse. Well, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because what Joyce seems to be doing is he's kind of, in, he's got a web of interconnectivity between his illusions, right? You've got Deasy, who's supposed to kind of be a Nestor-like figure, but who's quoting Iago. And then he talks about Shakespeare 
you get this idea that there's a muddling of voices and you really have to sort through what that objective truth really is. But DZ is so wrong. Yeah. Right. right? Yeah, he's wrong about it. He's even wrong yeah. about the historical yeah. facts about Jews in Ireland. Yes. Yeah. Like, he, he's, uh, I forget, there's like, th- when we get to the end, we'll get to it, but um, there's three or four things that he's schooling Stephen on, and each of those things are yeah. either misinterpreted or he's taking it out of context or he's flat out wrong. And just yeah. to go back to Shakespeare, he, he's, 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 he's yeah. quoting Shakespeare, Shakespeare. It's really not bad. realizing yeah. that it's Iago right. who's saying, yeah. put, put money in thy purse right. so that uh, you know, I'll get Desdemona yeah. to you know, sleep with you. Iago right. is actively conning Cassio right. through that, right? He's, Iago doesn't even believe what he's saying. Right. Shakespeare certainly doesn't. Dizzy is just reading it as a, yeah. a, as a, like a fact in right. some strange way. He, he's turned the words of, of, of one of the most infamous villains right. in literature into a maxim to be followed. Exactly. But right. and the great thing is we still do that to this day. Just really quick yeah. tangent. You know, Absolutely. Like even car, Carpe Diem, right? Okay. Right. You know, it comes from a poem by Horace, which many people, when we read it, it's pretty clear that Horace is speaking to a young woman who may not be the brightest, and he's trying to con her to say, look, seize the day. But not might, might not be another guy that you're going to have the opportunity to uh, enjoy his company, so Wait, let's what, get to it. What book is this in? It's a poem by Horace. All right. What poem? Poem. <laughs> I know. I'll, I'll talk to you about it later. Uh, <laughs> no, but the, the thing is, though, is I think that Joyce, Joyce's commentary, right? I mean, he's trying to show us that. If we need to, if we're going to understand our present situation, we have to sort through a muddling of voices, not only the yeah, ones yeah. written down, but the ones that are that are written down and coming out of other people who are still alive, coming out of their mouths now, right. like easy, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it harkens back to Swimicus, like when when uh, Caliban is evoked, mm-hmm. right? Stephen is such a, a perfect understanding of who that is, and through Caliban, who he is, and how that works. Or maybe it's Mulligan that says Mulligan that is the one that makes whatever. a reference, but I think that's an instance where I think you see Mulligan is almost an equal of Stephen to yeah, pull exactly. that out. Whereas with DZ, it's you know he's, he's just he's saying famous words like you know that, right. that make no sense out of context. Yeah, does it? Isn't Nestor supposed to be like that also in uh, as a character? I think to a certain extent. Well, the Nestor of the Iliad. Yeah, I yeah. think, but but. Not the Nestor of the Odyssey. The Nestor of the Odyssey seems humbled. And I, I just read the Odyssey, that's why, or, he, or that section. Well, I think he kind of relays information, right? He doesn't yeah. really do much in the Odyssey. And he's, he's impressed, I think, by the fact that uh, Telemachus had the courage to come to him. Mm. Remember, and Telemachus himself is so deferential to Nestor, and it's only because Athena, in disguise, says, Kid, you gotta speak up. Mm. Right, because I think he says at one point, "How could I ever even speak to this man? This is a real Trojan War hero." Yeah. Right. It's interesting. Yeah. So moving out of the uh, the Milton passage, you get this paragraph, which was I, I read, must have read this a dozen times. I find this paragraph confounding, but uh, let me read it through. Um, it must be a movement then, an actuality of the possible as possible. Aristotle's phrase formed itself within the gabbled verses and floated out into the uh, studious silence of the library of St. Genevieve, where he had read, sheltered from the sin of Paris, night by night. By his elbow, a delicate Siamese conned a handbook of strategy, fed and feeding brains about me, under glow lamps impaled with faintly beating feelers, and my mind's darkness, a sloth of the underworld, Reluctant, shy of brightness, shifting her dragon scaly folds. Thought is the thought of thought, tranquil brightness. The soul is in a manner all that is. 
The soul is the form of forms. Tranquility, sudden, vast, candescent, form of forms. Mm. Now, we start off with Aristotle, right? And he's trying to pinpoint a kind of theory of time, right? Is it that all time exists in one moment, or when does when does history become solidified? It's when one possibility is causally chosen out of the multitudes that exist as possible, right? That's kind of the highfalutin idea, right? But then I, I don't understand the connection of how that brings him to what I think is him in Paris, right? Because that's when he probably first read it. Aristotle. That's, that's when he's that reading he's, Aristotle. So what, again, when we talked about, you know, Stephen islanding himself from, you know, civilization from basically right. girls and, and, and life. He gets to Paris. He goes to Paris and, he and he's, to he's secluded in a library yeah. reading Aristotle in this very gloomy... If you look at pictures of the reading room where he was, yeah. you see why he's comparing it to like glow worms because you've got these lamps that almost look like you know incandescent lightning bugs or caterpillars or whatnot. So this is him reading Aristotle, having a similar thought, yeah. and bringing him back. This, right. this I mean, puts I mean, us back to Paris. I, have we yeah, had a yeah. reference to him going to Paris think, before this? I think this is it. I think this maybe. is the first one. And well, definitely him in Paris. Yeah, he might have alluded to going somewhere and coming back. I don't think. I don't think I don't in Telemachus we had a reference to what had happened between na- other than his mom dying. We know right. that, but. I think this is the first evidence that oh he went to Paris. We just know that he came um, back from somewhere. Buck Mulligan makes a reference right. to your style. Latin quarter hat. Right. That's okay. okay. That's your right. only other right. reference. Paris fads. Right. There yeah. You Damn you and your Paris fads with the lemon and the coffee. You're right. right. What's interesting is the narrative. I remember that whole thing. I know that's impressive. <laughs> the narrative changes time. Right. Right. Exactly. We're in the present moment, but the narrative is able to slip us into a past moment, and it does it within like one sentence, mm-hmm. and it talks about movement. Right. So what's theory of relativity? This idea that if you're moving more slowly, then time seems like it goes by more quickly, right? And if you're moving quickly, time seems like it's moving by more slowly. Somehow in the middle of this passage, (laughs) in the middle of this passage, you have these moments in which the, the scene is actually happening, and then we go into Stephen's mind or the narrative, and all of a sudden things slow down. And not only do they just slow down, but then they take us into past moments. Personal history. Personal history. Personal history. Well, Before. that's one thing. This could also apply to his choices, right? Mm-hmm. You know, him choosing to leave Dublin, him choosing to leave, to go back, that all the possibilities for his future, his personal yeah. future exist, and these are the ones that he has kind of dotted out mm-hmm. on, the, on the schema <laughs> of his life or whatever that is. Yeah. Um, I like the play of darkness and light that's going to be recurring throughout, especially this episode, but then the idea of... You know, darkness being that some sort of knowledge that is different, like remember he reverses very soon, you know, the darkness that was not understood by the light, you know, taking right. the gospel of John and flipping it on its head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you have of course Deasy talking about the Jews you know, they, they, they sinned against the light, then of course who is going to be our hero? It's going to be a, a product of that so-called darkness so right. if we're looking for connections that are predicting the arrival of Bloom, we're starting to get them. Yeah. How about the word impaled in that phrase, too? Like, I, I, I think back, I'm getting... After reading this chapter, I started thinking a lot about um, my memory of reading the Iliad. And one thing I remember about the Iliad is that there's so much human bodily contact. Oh God, yeah. There's yeah, yeah, yeah. so much, like, description of people's bodies and fighting in yeah. war. 
brains cleaved. Oh my yeah. god. Yeah. Hector's body being dragged over yeah. very vividly. I remember at one point Paris falling on the battlefield and and all these soldiers are kind of like looming in or on him until, you know, Aphrodite whisks him up mm-hmm. away on a cloud. Yeah. Like there's so much body to it and so when I see something like that and, and it comes up later um, as part of, you know, some of Keys, uh, some of Deezy's references to history, mm-hmm. um, that that tension between the old world of kings and kings' sons, that in which it was all what you had in front of you in your in your bodily possession, versus now when you can send telegrams and you could type things out on typewriters and you have merchants on the stock market, mm-hmm. you know, uh, things are happening in a meta sense, not just what's right in front of you. So, so that vision of Stephen, like, cloistered in the library then sends him into his brain, right, and his thought process or how his brain functions. Yeah. I, I think I'm getting this now. I really, this is all coming to me now. Um, and you get the mind's darkness, a sloth of the underworld, reluctant, shy of brightness, and the dragon, right? Yeah. That's all his, the thoughts in his head that are it's being repressed. It's also Blake. So it's, he's already right. got Blake on the mind, so it's a great way of describing his mind's thought almost like this hidden dragon in its lair. It's and then we start getting Platonic and Aristotelian mm-hmm. with the idea... I'm no expert in, you know, what is the soul, but the idea of, like, a prime mover, you know, ultimately, then, yes, you can have worlds contained within a mind, right? The mind can create all that is. So then how, what is that, how does that stand in relation to history? And these great thoughts then, of course, get occluded by Talbot reading about Christ, and then, boom, the shadow of Christ is now on him. And I love that detail that Talbot, you know, I had read this so many times before I realized this is a memorized recitation assignment. Because the reason why right. Talbot repeats that line, he doesn't realize he's repeating it. He's just, he's, it's rote memory. Yeah. And I never really read the introduction to this passage. Um, a swarthy boy opened a book and propped it nimbly under the breastwork of his satchel. I never really thought more of that than he's just opening the book and putting it there, but he's, I think he's attempting to hide it from Stephen. <laughs> oh, so he's Right? He's like, cheating. He's, he's cheating. Yeah. And I love that detail that Stephen doesn't seem to, or he thinks Stephen doesn't notice, but then notice what Stephen says. If that's the case, Stephen says, turn over. Yeah. As though, yeah, just turn the page. Like, <laughs> I, I know you're cheating, right? So we get these more details. <laughs> he just doesn't of, care. Yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I think that's great. Great teacher. <laughs> but before we go on to, you know, the, the meditation on Christ, one thing that I never, I still don't understand is, so we have that Talbot repeated through the dear might of him that walked the waves, through the dear might, turn over, Stephen said quietly. I don't see anything. What, what, is that just simply, I don't see anything as in, like, you've got to turn the page, there's nothing left on that page, or? Or no, maybe he's excusing him, like. Maybe he's being playful. Oh, oh right. Like, yeah, I don't, see like, I don't see anything. That's yeah. your point. Oh my yeah. god. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's yeah. making your point about him turning the other, turning a blind oh, eye. Oh my goodness situation. gracious! Sorry for shouting into the microphone, but I've, <laughs> I've, I've, I've read that so many times and had. Yeah. Okay. You're very excited. I'm very excited. I apologize. We'll have to edit that out. <laughs> we no don't edit. edit. No editing. Uh, so what about Caesar here? Caesar and God. That's, that's so satisfying. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, what do you mean? That's the the whole uh, when uh, Caesar, what is, it, what the, is it the Pharisees who try to trick him into accepting money yeah. and his riddle? This is what brings the theory of riddling or right. the theme of riddling. You know, render under Caesar what is Caesar's, render under God what is God's. Right. I think Stephen's impressed with 
Christ's cleverness, right? Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, like not necessarily the theology or the morality, but the uh, the the kind of wordsmithing and the play of getting around the problem. In this instance, Christ is one of these men that dabble in darkness, right? Mm-hmm. Darkness as in this hidden knowledge because, you know, you get the dark eyes of Christ. I think we talked about this in Dubliners, right? Like Joyce using eyes very prevalently in symbolic ways or as a focus <laughs> because of what they represent. And you get it a lot in this particular section, right, with vision and, yeah. you know, the sinning against light and darkness. Yeah. It's a good and, passage. What? I, I'm surprised, yeah. you, you know, you weren't talking with regards to wordplay about the paragraph before. Mm-hmm. Such complicated syntax. I feel oh, like, well, you yeah. know, that sound, sounds to me like Faulkner, like uh, Darl and... Uh, um, uh, as they dying or something like the the syntax is really complicated kind of doubles back and works on itself um i think it's interesting that as much as joyce is critiquing storytelling and, and perhaps the idea that you know what what is any objective truth and yet he's still doing it to us like we're still in the midst of reading this story and we have to kind of sort through it in the same way steven's sorting through things. Yeah, I, I'm always kind of tempted to play a kind of metagame with this yeah. book. Joyce certainly knows what he's doing in terms of yeah. creating complexity, you know, and I, I wonder if we're kind of the students in his mind to his own Stephen being him in terms of this kind of like, uh, and there's something pompous about it, perhaps, <laughs> and that's maybe why I don't love the read, because I hate <laughs> to think that is the case, but there does seem to be like the text we hold in our hands and try and puzzle through is kind of like the dynamics in the schoolroom a little. Very gerbil. Well, yeah. the arguments have been made that, you know, people that find, you know, they're not satisfied with Bloom as the Ulysses and say, well, wait a minute, what, where, where is the adventure? Some people have argued, well, the adventure, the readers is the reader. are the one that are going on the adventure. They're the Odysseus who has to navigate the... You know the the Cyclops and, and the one yeah. and yeah. you know go, Calypso and yeah. And this seems like a facile argument because it's, yeah. it's just a little bit too easy. But it, there is something to that. Well, when, you, when you get to like we haven't seen anything yet. Like you know I read the Proteus section the other day. Yeah. It's easy compared to Oxen of the Sun. Oxen of the Sun's impossible. It's well, not impossible, <laughs> it but impossible. it is. It is. It's a lot of work. It, yeah. That's thirty years before a lot of artists try to make you know have people come in and make sense of the art, right? Whether or not it's art or what's happening. So does that make Joyce like ahead of his time in that oh, regard? So my, my God, yes. He's incredibly ahead of his time, but I don't know. I, it's weird. Mm, yeah, I would say so. I'll, I'll, I was going to go off on a tangent, but I, uh, <laughs> I'll refrain. So speaking of riddles, right, we get an explicit riddle next um, that, I mean, doesn't seem to be solvable in any kind of practical sense. We talked a little bit about this before we started recording here, but I get what is happening here in terms of Stephen's psychology, his guilt about the mother, and, you know, even replacing grandmother in the um, the solution to the symbol. He's the fox bearing the grandmother. It's all kind of, um, you know, Freudian replacement and all that. But as a riddle in and of itself, there is no kind of, it's meaningless, right? Yeah. It's garbled nonsense, I think. I think it's. I hope it is. I yeah. hope. Like, <laughs> otherwise, I feel really stupid. Like, like when those kids kind of moan, like you know, dejectedly, like when they give the answer, do do they like 
I would be like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Unless, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I, think, yeah. I think he's messing with the kids here. Yeah, I, think I, think so. it's, I mean, it's, it's funny in the fact that it's, that it is nonsensical, right? Like, I think, you know, like when you tell like crappy jokes for the point of telling a crappy joke that has no, uh, you know, why the chicken crossed the road. I mean, there's no satisfaction in that answer. Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a... I think what also the kids are upset about is like, there's nothing, it doesn't seem like there's anything in the riddle that would get you to that response. So if there's not even a chance to win, like, why even do it? Well, that's the point. <laughs> like, think that that's the point. Oh, sorry, Tom. No, I was just going to say, what proceeds it is you got Talbot uh, closes his book and puts it in his satchel, and then Stephen asks, have I heard all? Yes, sir. Hockey at 10, sir. Half day, <laughs> sir. So it's almost as if they're dismissing him. Yes. Or maybe, <laughs> so, so maybe this is like a screw you. I'm just going to yeah. throw out some gibberish because I'm brilliant and you all want to go run off and play hockey. But it also <laughs> nicely answers the beginning where we are dealing with facts. The kids are supposed to have the right answer and Stephen is essentially perhaps on purpose Not showing them that there isn't always perhaps, a right yeah. answer. Right? But there doesn't seem to be a answer. Yeah. No, no, there's no answer to this. I mean, there's an answer. Let's yeah. put it this way. It's an answer, but it's not an answer that you could, from the from the evidence, actually come to. Yeah. And I, I, this weird detail that um, uh, he stood up and gave a shout of nervous laughter. He's uncomfortable yeah. with this himself. Like, it's not that he's... You know this kind of cocksure. I'll show you, young rapscallion. Oh, he's awkward. Yeah, he's really awkward. He really does. His throat itches when he's he's saying yeah. it. And Stephen doesn't do well with issues of truth, right? I mean, what was his big dilemma in part three of Portrait? He was choosing between going into becoming a priest and understanding the great knowledge and wisdoms of the world, the great mysteries of the world, versus the artist and, and embracing the kind of ambiguity. For him to kind of muddle this, he does. I don't think he feels comfortable consciously muddling truth, even in front of these kids, to himself. You, you mean he's, he's uncomfortable with revealing who he really is, like what really happens in his mind? Oh, I, I don't know. I... I, I there might be something like I that. mean, we've been with Stephen for quite some time with the starting of Portrait. Here's somebody who doesn't want to be up in front of people. He wants to be in his mind. He wants to be yeah. on a piece of paper. He wants to be in a book. That's mm. where he's, that's his comfort zone. I don't think anything else is. And also, if you want to take it a step further, perhaps there's the, the nervousness of actually doing something that's a little too close to home. Maybe when well, he actually right. realizes what the standard answer is, maybe because apparently this is a standard riddle, like a joke riddle, and the answer is mother, not grandmother, and maybe at that point he puts in grandmother uh, okay. rather than mother because he, it's something that's clearly still on his mind. Yeah, that's what I meant by the yeah. Freudian thing. Like yeah. That's Joyce showing that Stephen you know, yeah. is, is not comfortable with his own thing Mm -hmm. you know and And the the mother comes up five paragraphs later well in the next big paragraph the one that's when he looks at sergeant says ugly and futile right that's her he turns he supplement supplements i think i'm doing that right um a sergeant for himself right you know he starts Mm -hmm. talking about how oh this kid's so pathetic his mother must love him he would have been squash if not he's steven's really talking about himself there yeah joyce is doing something there joyce is 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 really disengaging himself from Stephen as like a subject for the the reader. But then Stephen, really, like the moment of Stephen's realization that he is looking at himself or viewing himself, you know, as a as a child, comes later. I don't think he realizes that at first. His reaction is, you know, because Stephen says, "I'm looking at my childhood here." Yeah, he does right, say that, right. but it doesn't in come Sergeant? in Sargent. Yeah, yeah. It come, yeah, yeah, it comes not later. In this not not in this par- yeah. But when I first read this paragraph, I. I thought he was talking about himself. I had to go back and read it again to realize that it wasn't 
yeah. Stephen here, that mm-hmm. sergeant. She had loved his weak and watery blood drains from her own. Was that then real? Right. He, that's a, that's about him and his mother, isn't yeah. you know. It's also about his conversation with Cranley that's still sure. lingering here, right? Yeah, you know, because yeah. that was what was what does Cranley say? Something like, uh, you know, if there's anything that's real in this stinking dunghill of a world, it's a mother's love. <laughs> yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. The only true thing in life. And, and it's been rejarred because of Mulligan's comments mm-hmm. that just happened an hour earlier. I, I love the detail of, of, or the journey of the snail, right? First he sees yeah, the date-shaped yeah. ink stain that looks like a snail, or wet like a snail's bed. Then you have Sargent, who is you know, so vulnerable like a snail that could be crushed. And then, you know, but for her, the race of the world, my first take on that is race. Okay, so, like, humankind. But, no, the race, as in, like, the actual running race of the world would have trampled him underfoot because he's, like, a snail that's going to be crushed. And there's something poignant in this because what is the one point of intellectual weakness that Stephen voices at the beginning of Portrait? It's math. Remember when it's math. And so he he does now see himself in the same position. Yeah. And, I mean, to continue your snail thing, once we get to DZ, we're going to end up with empty shells mm-hmm. where the meat is no longer available. Sure. And that's going to be the relic from history, you know, and all that, that kind of thematic meaning. Yeah, that's really good. And foxes eat snails. Foxes eat snails? This is one of my favorite is that moments. A thing? I, don't I bet. Humans eat snails. I bet. No, I bet it is. Uh, I've seen fox down the shore, uh, Sandy Hook. They have to be eating snails. <laughs> if you say so, yeah, there's man. rabbits everywhere down there. They're oh, they're probably eating rabbits too. I, would I, much think, rather I don't a rabbit think they, I think they eat mice before rabbits. I don't think they eat a rabbit. Sure, you don't want to edit anything. Oh, <laughs> uh, maybe. Uh, my, uh, my favorite part of this <laughs> is this moment where he immediately connects it to when he says, "You know, poor soul gone to heaven." And on a heath beneath winking stars a fox, red reek of rapine, or rapine, in his fur, with merciless bright eyes, scraped in the earth, listened, scraped up the earth, listened, scraped and scraped. Like, you capture that animal at midnight with winking eyes, scratching, like, either digging up a corpse or burying a corpse. It's digging perfect. Snails. <laughs> and, and that's him, right? I that's, mean, that's, that's him. That's a that's vision guilt. of himself. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's about his personal, you know, pain about the mother and all of this. But it's also about, I think, the thinking process, him digging up the past. Right. Mm -hmm. Him him plunging the depths of his own mind. And, you know, he's commenting on the thing that is actually happening in the moment. Yeah, I think. Um, And then uh, the, the paragraph that's right below where the symbols start dancing and all that is amazing too. Like Where have amazing. we seen that before? We've seen that, like, math is beautifully rendered in Joyce. Think about when it's in, I think, the beginning of chapter three of Portrait where the equations are fanning out like peacock's tails and yeah, then yeah, become yeah. like stars and galaxies opening mm-hmm. eyes in the universe that are opening and yeah. closing. Mm-hmm. Here right. we have, I think, an even better rendering because of the connection of algebra to you know, the East, to Arabic learning when you know, the, the so-called European Dark Ages are happening. You've got you know, learning that is the cradle of learning has moved East with Arab learning, and then he thinks of two Easterners who have carried on the tradition of Aristotle yeah. and trying to find a way of... of, of uh, yeah, that's in the same passage, right? Isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And exactly. so the idea of the, the Moorish dance 
first he thinks of Morris because of, you know, that's kind of a traditional dance, you know, that involves, uh, you know, elaborate costumery, but then Morris makes him think of Moors. Well, why does he have Moors, uh, you know, where are we going to see Moors again on the mind, even though it's from Deasy? Deasy quotes, and then you think Iago, oh, Othello. You know, even in the fabric beyond the consciousness of the characters, there are things going on. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, Stevenson's mind races, right? It's it's very clear. Um, The, uh, oh my God, another thought. (coughs) Um, also, curiously, uh, some uh, you know, it's been pointed out that at this very time in I think it's Calypso, yeah. Bloom is thinking about the East. I think he sees an advertisement for plots of land in I guess what would be now Israel, and is thinking, oh, that's a good idea. You know, maybe that would be a good investment. And so he's also thinking of the East at this very moment. So you start seeing the the twining of the two thoughts. Hmm. Yeah, because. Uh, those, I don't think it's perfect, but those first Bloom chapters overlap, right? They're supposed to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a point in which a cloud passes over Stephen in Proteus, and his thoughts immediately turn gloomy, and there's a cloud, or maybe not Proteus, somewhere, maybe it's in uh, Telemachus, and a cloud passes over Bloom at the yeah. same, it's supposed to be the exact same time, and sure. his thoughts immediately turn dark. So this passage, and I think a couple other in in this chapter, right? It, it's, it, the word's not there, but it's, I think it's all referencing back to the umphalos idea, right? Stevens, I, I, I'm just having the thought now, it's probably not developed, but um, Stevens always trying to find kind of the source material of truth, I guess, mm-hmm. right? And isn't that really what umphalos is, right? It, it's that, that kind of um, distillation of where everything happened. In, in, um, Telemachus, it was spatial, right, as marked by the tower. Here, it's all temporal, right, as a kind of a kind of play of history. From one thing to it's the channel that yeah. you know, from one life to another life, and then it becomes almost farcical in Proteus. Remember where he envisions uh, a phone line back to yeah. Adam and Eve, or back mm-hmm. to Adam, and tries to call it, and tries to call it. Yeah. Well, you know, Homer was writing about things that actually existed, right? The Trojan War, There, there's uh, evidence that a war did, did exist on that land. How much of Homer would be considered history versus art, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, doesn't he kind of somehow, you know, float that line, you know, the ambiguity of, of retelling actual history versus adding your own kind of subjectivity to, to what happened in life? Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Homer was viewed as history, right. you know, for, for a very long time. I mean, yeah. I think it's all we got well, for that time period, so I mean, recognizing the, the things that we would not call history, it's, it's pretty much all we got for yeah. that time period. We consider the Trojan War an event that happened based on Homer, right? Yeah. I mean, that's all we have. It's, yeah. no, I mean, you, I, have you have an archaeological there's site. There's some archaeology yeah. site in, but, I mean, in even Turkey. That, so, well, we're probably going off on a no, tangent, no. but yeah, you do have, you have an archaeological history. site. You have uh, the the legacy of archaeologists, or I put that in quotes, of Heinrich Schliemann, who, you know, was able to identify the site as quote unquote Troy. Mm-hmm. But I mean, on the face of it, of course, you're going to have a site there in that completely stri- that very strategical, yeah, you know, or strategic rather area, you know, entering from the <clears throat> Aegean Sea to the Black Sea. So mm-hmm. it really is Homer. I mean, if not for Homer, we wouldn't have gone looking for that site. So I think yeah. it's right to say that. 
that it, it Homer is it. And they did the same way the, the Bible, the Old yeah. Testament is, or anything. They yeah. did find helmets, right, and swords, and, and they oh, do sure. have, you know, materials that is evidenced of, of, a, of a great war that took place right. there. You know, I, I just think it's interesting that Joyce takes Homer in order to kind of use as a foundation to, to look into storytelling and truth. And what, what, do we, what can we really get from it? Because it really does have a clash of history and, and the modern perspective that all things are relative and my truth is only what's happening inside my head and this narrative voice that seems to float in and out of people. Yeah, I think that's a notion that troubles Stephen, right? That's why he keeps, yeah. right? Because if the things in my head are true, then I'm in trouble because he's a damaged person to a certain extent. That's why he keeps looking outside. He keeps looking for something more solid, even though I think he realizes it doesn't really exist. And I think you see that also on the level of his narrative, because where he can find things that are more solid are the things that he himself can shape in narrative. We've seen this before yeah, in right. refinement, how in portrait he would there will be something almost theme, seems like something out of his chapbook, you know, where he's describing something. Like take Bird Girl for an example, but <laughs> but Bird Girl is not actually a good example because you just get that one snapshot of Bird Girl. But there's other points. I mean, think <laughs> of the the images even in Telemachus of his mother as you know that that scent of rosewood and wetted ashes, and then you see it refined later. You see that also here. It's a theme that I, I think as far as trying to find something he's comfortable with, it's at the level of narrative. So, for example, notice he describes um, Sargent on page 27. On his cheek, dull and bloodless, a soft stain of ink lay, date-shaped, recent and damp as a snail's bed. And then just a couple paragraphs later, we have uh, lean neck and tangled hair and a stain of ink, a snail's bed. Yeah. You know, it's, he's, he's constantly refining it. Mm -hmm. You know, what is a simile in the first part becomes a metaphor in the second mm -hmm. part. That's what he can control. That's where he's in his comfort zone. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's good. Um, Stephen was a Jesuit child, and you go through life with the answers all provided for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if, if you're, you're not provided for that, I think maybe you, have a, you feel more comfortable with the ambiguity and the subjectivity of life. But I think since he started off his first 16, 17 years locked into, you know, the hardware and the software that was installed in his brain is purely uh, Catholic, it's Jesuit, and then you're sort of thrust into the, you know, his, his passions for literature and the past and this interpretation, I think it, it, it makes you very uneasy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what's interesting is even the Catholic history is built off of a great deal of mythology, right? It's all, know, it, yeah, but, but you take it initially as the word of law, right. and then as you, you, you realize that it's no different than Homer, Homeric sort of a, tele, a game of telephone that's been taking place over 2,000 yeah. years. Right. And don't you get a sense that this DZ guy, he kind of dismisses toward the end of this chapter, that he doesn't seem like he can help help him, or, or, or the stuff that he's offering doesn't seem relevant? But he him? should, because he's an elder, you right. know, but it just it's impossible for him to do so. I, I think there's something pretty universal about this, too. I mean, I, I remember you know, grow, grow up like, you know, Catholic, did the mm -hmm. whole thing, Catholic school for 12 years, and around, you know, 15, stop believing or start mm -hmm. questioning, whatever, and feeling a very unsettledness, mm -hmm. like, because if, if the answer isn't that I'm going to die and go to heaven or hell or whatever happens, whatever nonsense was fed to me, then what is it? And I had to, I felt an anxiety about having to find an answer to that. Mm -hmm. The degree in which you dance with it is, is, is pretty much up to you through your entire, entire childhood. For Stephen, 
he dabbled with the idea of actually going into it. So he's closer to that edge. So when he pulls away from it, I think it is more traumatic. I mean, I don't know if you had, had uh, dreams, uh, dreams of priesthood at one point uh, in time. Uh, no how devout you were. But, but traumatic um, might be a little too much, but definitely like an anxiety. There's right? an anxiety. There's an anxiety. You have a little bit of a kind of personality crisis, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and I imagine somebody that never had the training in the first yeah, place less anxiety over just kind issues. of floats through, you know, because those questions have not been, you haven't been told that there's an answer. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and that's probably better, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would imagine. I don't know. I, I mean, I am, I've said it before, uh, unapologetic atheist, you know, and um, all right, enough. I'll have to up another thing. Do you support the uh, ladies of the night? Yeah. What? <laughs> so we get into DZ's office, yes, which I think is handled extraordinarily well, right? It is, as Josh was mentioning before, it is definitely a museum, and he is a kind of collector and curator of the past. Um, and I was thinking about Stephen, right, who in some ways is very much opposite that, at least in terms of the material world, right? He doesn't collect anything. He floats around life, and he leaves things behind. He's a great lever of the past. Um, except profligate in his spending, you know, unlike DZ's message of saving. And well, I love the paragraph where he enumerates his debts, right? Mm-hmm. He's a collector of debts, yeah. right? He doesn't... Um, <clears throat> He's not somebody that has material things. Again, even in his kind of uh, what nostalgia or enumerating of the past, yeah. it's this kind of negative uh, baggage in a way. Before we get to that, I love this yeah. blending, the description of the study itself, which is then punctuated by the, you know, as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be world without end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's, that, if, right. if you do believe that all history is moving towards an end, what should sound like the triumphant manifestation of God sounds like the most suffocating, you know, prison. You know, when that, that whole idea, I mean, you begin the whole narrative, come to think of it, with the idea of a prison. Because in that meditation on, you know, what happens when those infinite possibilities become actualized, then everything else is kicked out of that room and the possibilities are now living in that room. But again, once it's a shell. It's a prison. Well, right. Telemachus opens up with a kind of... Remember we were talking a little bit about an existential crisis. He begins in a sort of prison, right? He's stuck in this castle, and he's mm-hmm. got suitors trying to take his mother. You know, So he, he has to kind of venture out of that to try to make sense or to do anything to benefit his own selfhood, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and Stephen himself is already bristling. Like he, He's ready to escape from this. You know, he's thinking to himself, you know, when he when he makes his joke, remember, he's I like that detail that he's having a hard time even saying anything to DZ, and he thinks to himself, answer something, and he makes the joke yeah. about this, the little bank, you know, mine would often be empty, but then says, you know, to himself, the same room and hour, the same wisdom, and I the same. What, what does that mean? He has not developed. I mean, he's getting nothing out of this. Three times now. Well, where have we seen three times? Was, We've seen three times with the just in the, on the prior page, as it was in the beginning, as it was oh. you know, the past, present, future. Nothing is changing here. He has to break from this, as he says. Three nooses round me here, 
well, I can break them this moment if I will. Right? Also, Josh, doesn't this scene echo so many of those scenes from Portrait? They were roughly three scenes in Portrait where he's in, you know, the office mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. Um, you know, a priest. Yeah. And he's sitting behind the table. Remember the... The con one, me, you know, con me first. Right? Yeah, remember when he's walking through and he's looking at the paintings yeah, along yeah, the wall yeah, yeah. as he's heading to the rector's office. And then there's this great moment where he's sitting in um, Deezy's office and Deezy's muttering to himself as he's trying to, you know, use the typewriter and he's looking up on the walls and he's noticing, yeah. like, uh, the, the kings and the, the dudes. The horses. The horses like from, like, the 19th century and that kind of clash of history. And I feel I felt like wow, this is like Stevens has been here so many times on the, on this side of the desk, like man, like history just kind of keeps going over itself. You know? Yeah, the three nooses I think refer to um, the British, the 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 Catholics, right, and our Irish nationalism, right? Isn't that the same dynamic that we sure, saw? That's what he saw. That's what Columbus. portrait the nets in portrait that he mm-hmm. must fly right. beyond. Yeah. Three three muses also sounds a lot like three muses, and I know there were I think eight nine. muses, nine muses, right? But were there only three associated with um, writing and, and art mm. and storytelling? No, no, I think there's more. Okay, I could be wrong, but I think there's more. Yeah. So in this office, we get the kind of um, I guess major ideology cl- clash between. DZ's what conservatism and Stevens liberalism I think right mm-hmm. and um, I, I mean I, I appreciate that DZ is um, you know kind of light about the conversation that it, it isn't you know that at the end he says like oh, I like talking to you like I like sharing I like ideas. to break a lance break a lance you. right hmm. puts it in this kind of um, combative medieval yeah, term martial right yeah. it's martial but um, you know I, it would be probably a, a big fault to have him as too overbearing and and um, tyrannical, you know. The, the one Stephen's job is not on the line. Right. There's something for disagreeing, you know. The one place where we see actual, you know, foresight from uh, or genuine wisdom from DZ is the friendly aside. You know, I, I don't see you staying here long. Not that I'm going to be yeah. leaving you. Not that I'm going to be firing you. But you don't seem like you want to stay here. Is that and the only like real true insight? I think that's like the real, only real insight, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, the how do I say this? Uh, the paragraph, right? I'm a middle of thirty-one. You know, the glorious, pious, and immortal mm-hmm. memory. Um, I read the whole thing. The Lodge of Diamonds of Armage. 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 The splendid behung the, with corpses of the pe- the papishes, horse, mast, and arms. The Planters Convent, the Black Covenant. Oh, Covenant! I know. I'm, my brain's going. I think I need more Dayquil. I'm not feeling well today. <laughs> uh, the Black North and True Blue Bible. Cropsies lie down. That was a difficult paragraph, but I, I think what I'm getting from it is it's Stephen's sense of who this guy is in terms of his historical point of view, and if history is this kind of objective Victorian sensibility. He doesn't want any part of it because it's grotesque and horrifying. Yeah, glorious, pious, and immortal, according to uh, Gifford. It's a, it's a direct toast to William III. And yeah. William III, we've talked about before, he just yeah. seems to loom large over Irish Catholics because of just being this dominant Protestant. And his predecessor, right? Hadn't his predecessor, wasn't there some um, more autonomy that had Who's been promised? Predecessor? Uh, pre- uh, William. 
Williams' before, predecessor. Before who's Williams King is James, James II. Right? He's replacing and, James. And in battle. Right, it's it's a bloodless battle. Right, so but it's yeah. it's it's not like a, a just succession. Right, it's no, a, no, 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 right. no. James has run out right. of town. And so his, James, his I thought had uh, your your knowledge of this is stronger mm-hmm. than mine. But I um, I thought I remember reading somewhere that there was uh, more autonomy given to Ireland, and then when William comes in, it's it's that's when we have the. Uh, you know, the curfews put in mm-hmm. and basically just the, the starving of mm-hmm. Ireland, both literally and metaphorically, right? And I like the idea that you have, uh, at the same time that DZ is celebrating himself as both a, a tried-and-true Tory, you mm-hmm. know, unionist, mm-hmm. right. yeah. saying, but look, you know, I, I got rebel blood in me too. Like, we're <laughs> all the same, right? And he's going through his history while Stephen is running through the history as well yeah. in these little glimpses which, if you know your Irish history well, which I only do through, through reading, right? Yeah, I don't, yeah, no, but you can just imagine yeah. Stephen, Stephen, who's so steeped in it, yeah. is basically just throwing out these things that have such significance, but they're just, once again, it's like uh, one more victory like that and we're done for. They're things we remember, like crappies lie down. Yeah. And then what does Stephen physically do after thinking all those things? He sketched a brief gesture. It's like, yeah, you know, history is just a, you know, like something to be cast off. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. how else are you supposed to deal with this guy? Because he is a ball of contradictions. It's like yeah. one of us saying, I'm a Democrat, and I'm a Republican, too, at heart. Yeah. You know, like, you can't yeah. be these two things simultaneously, so it pretty much discredits all the, the shit that he says from that point forward. Especially on the heels of, of how he was talking about t- getting money and and um, taking, you know, he's a creditor, he's got, he's got people who owe him things, and then what's he doing at the end? He's criticizing the Jews, not coming mm-hmm. to Ireland. You know, he... he, he Seemed I, I don't know, I feel like Stephen could easily see through him. I felt that way. Yeah. yeah. Haynes isn't much different, right, in terms of being this guy that's kind of apologizing for being, mm-hmm. uh, being from England. I, I guess it's a little bit of a reversal, right? Haynes is actually from England mm-hmm. and is um, apologizing for the Irish treatment. Deasy is an Irishman, right, who kind of connects himself to... England proclaims otherwise that I'm one of us and you know this is the right way to think. Stephen, I think, subverts them both, right? I mean, if that's if those are your choices, Stephen says, I don't want any part of any connection back, right? History is the nightmare from which I'm trying to wake, right? That history is England because England was the victor that got to tell that history, therefore I dismiss it completely. Right? It's almost like Joyce wants to set up this kind of dichotomy for Stephen. We have to choose one of these two. And he says, no, nah, it's false, right? I, I can just reject it all. Yeah. And don't, don't give me the predetermined part to play. Exactly, because yeah. it continues it, his journey, right? right? And that locks into that predeterminism that was set up, I think, in the very first page, you know, that in order for, for me to really be able to reject it, I have to be able to, um, what, engage with my own will, mm-hmm. right? And not not buy into the, the preordained notions of life, whether it's, you know, a state or even the, the notions of church, which have kind of been sprinkled throughout this chapter as well. Or the guilt of his mother, right? Yeah. yeah I think Cranley, that's a personal you know, Cranley was saying, look, go back to the mother, go back, and he, he doesn't do that either. Yeah. You know, he's, he's at, the only place he can go is forward. He can't diverge or return. Yeah. It's one more ghost from the past that's yeah. haunting him. For sure. Yeah. Um... All right, what else? 
We got anything else? We mentioned the horses, right? And Nestor yeah. is frequently referred mm-hmm. to as the uh, breaker oh, horses or, or yeah, tamer horses. Like and then we go from the theme of the horses to <laughs> the cattle yeah. and, and the uh, hoof and mouth disease, yeah. which right, apparently right. This, is, this is his area of expertise. Yeah. And well, the Trojan horse. And too. people people have yeah. made a great to do about the fact that uh, the symbol of the ox has to do with like rebirth, hence the whole oxen of the sun chapter, yeah. which we'll talk about later. But then also, Nestor's palace is on the river Alpheus. That um, the root of Alpha, that first letter, has to do with the ox, apparently, linguistically. Supposedly, the shape of the Alpha is a, like a pictogram of an ox's head, although right. I don't see it. And so it's perfect that you have then his fixation is on the hoof and mouth disease, which is a, a real plague going on. It's a serious thing, but it's almost treated lightly here in the sense that that's, he's, he's so focused on that. It seems like something Nestor would be focused on, you know, living on the Alpheus River. And then, of course, uh, Stephen flips it to, oh, great, so I'm going to become with Mulligan, the Bullock befriend, bef- I can't even say it, Bullock befriending bard. Right, yeah. <laughs> I I was thinking, like, you know, the, the bull with the horns always has to do with being cuckolded, uh, too. I don't know yeah. if it fits nicely into this dynamic, but, well, I, you know, I think... DZ in his narrative of women have brought sin into this world... Which really he, comes from nowhere. It comes from nowhere, but for the fact it was in his article talking right. about Cassandra... Which I think then immediately made him. He's thinking of he's scapegoating, right? Yeah, scapegoat exactly. is you know the Jews, which he never comes right out and says the reason why I'm having trouble getting my my action taken is because of. And then he hints that there's these dark forces, yeah. and then jumps from that to the Jews. You know, it's it's, it's almost like you have a political candidate whose syntax is so frayed that they just jump from things completely illogically, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, can, can you, you imagine about anybody uh, specifically there? Well, if you're... So, oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Just to make, I was just going to say, and then the women come in at the same time is looking for another scapegoat. Well, There's it no seems to be logic like, behind it. It's it's his last refuge for justifying his, his awful ideas, right? Because he tries to engage Stephen intellectually and gets bested. It's yeah. very clear, right? He doesn't have the linguistic capabilities or the depth of thought that of something like history is the right. nightmare from which I can't wake or whatever. Um, so what is so? Well, what about the Jews? What about these right, women? Right, right? right. It, I think that it's coming from nowhere. Makes sense. It, it speaks to his kind of desperate bigotry that, like, like it's almost he can't contain anymore. It's the thing that's right on his head that he that it's on his foremind, but he's been holding back, right. you know, for politeness, but there's no time for politeness anymore. And the reason why I brought up the women is that could be the link then if you were looking for one for cuckoldry, you know, yeah, Helen, right, exactly. uh, Catherine O'Shea and her husband. Yeah. Dave, I'm sorry. Well, I, no, I was just going to ask before, for an Irish Catholic, and if he's going to talk about women being the fault, why isn't he referencing Eve? You know, eating an apple. Why is he going to Greek mythology? I thought there was a reference, wasn't there? Maybe was there? Well, so there could be one. So I thought a lot. He about said a woman brought sin into the world. Right. That's, 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 that's it. That's yeah, it. That's yeah, it. Oh, but yeah, no, but there's works. another one that's indirect. That so I puzzled over when he said that uh, the Jews have sinned against the light. Right. 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 And then there's a long pause 
And then Stephen's next, I think this is the case, Stephen's next response is, yes, they have sin- they sinned against the light, Mr. Deasy said gravely, and he's talking about the Jews. And you can see the darkness in their eyes, and that is why they are wanderers on the earth to this day. And then Stephen has his meditation of what he probably saw at the Paris Stock Exchange, yeah, right. probably seeing a, a large population of Jewish men that, that are living in this world that is not theirs and somehow have to navigate it. Stephen's next response to Deasy is, who has not? And you're wondering, wait, wait, what, what does he mean, who has not? And Deasy asks him, what do you mean? And, of course, it is. Everyone sinned against the light. Right. The way I take that is Stephen saying to Deasy, well, if you believe this doctrine, then what about original sin? The Jews are no worse than us. We've all sinned against the light if you follow the doctrine of original sin and Eve, which then Deasy does say a woman brought sin into the world. Right. right? So I think he's calling Deasy out for being a hypocrite there. Without being, I mean, Stephen isn't strident. He's no, always no, no. navigating. I mean, he does, though. He surprises me, for example, with the line um, where Deasy says, you know, we are all king's sons. And his response is, alas. So he does, he's pushing back. Yeah. But he's not, he's never rude. But it's under his breath a little bit, isn't it? Like some of the things he mutters to himself, you know, he's not like outwardly challenging Deasy. Mm-hmm. Like he could mm-hmm. if he wanted, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and it strikes me, Stephen, you know, it, is more like the wandering Jew mythos than anybody that he's Mm -hmm. encountering, Haynes or Deasy here, right? And that's going to, you know, I I think we're setting up his connection to Bloom later as, you know, the the kind of Jew father figure for Stephen. But I can see Stephen's sympathy, right, Mm -hmm. for... For these stereotypes, because he would be lumped in with them. Yeah. How about the con- how about the conflict between the merchants on the stock exchange who are also wanderers uh, of of life, which Odysseus was a wanderer, yeah. and the plunderers, the ones who went to Troy and sacked the city and plundered it mm-hmm. and took all everything back with them. Like, does that make them any better? Right. Mm-hmm. And somehow Deezy's kind of wrapped up in all this mythos because we see him as that nest well, figure, I mean, right? You know, Deasy would probably very easily say, like, you know, oh, the Jews are ruining this country because of, right, he says it in so many words, because of the way they handle their economics, whatever. He He's a collector of coins, yeah. you know, like on the table. It, he the is just as mercantile is, as, as yeah. the people that he is criticizing. The hypocrisy yeah. is all laid out, right. you know. He could never see that because that's not what it's about. Yeah. It's not about logic. It's, you know, even though he claims to be the great objective historian, it's not about that. It's and, about his own personal bigotry. And if you look at Stephen's response after the comment with the women, he says, well, sir, he began. And then I foresee Mr. Deasy kind of claims in, like, you get this idea, like, you know, he was about to kind of get up. Like, well, sir, I'll, I'll see you out. later. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and he keeps him here. Yeah, hey, can we talk about the, the great moment when uh, after he says his famous line, <laughs> history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to wake, and then we have the juxtaposition from the play field. The boys raised a shout, yeah, a yeah. whirring whistle. Goal! Yeah. What if that nightmare <laughs> gave you a back kick? And then, so you can, he- I hear how this works. You hear the kids shout, Goal! And then Deezy, without realizing it, it's planted in his head, says, The ways of the Creator are not our ways, Mr. Deezy said. All history moves towards one great goal, the manifestation of God. <laughs> it's, it be, you know, it's a trite statement. Right, right, right. But it becomes even more, it's revealed how trite it is. You're, goal! Yes, one great goal. Right. You know, it's like two, you know... Boys outside goal. playing yeah. a yeah. game but that then means Steve, But then yeah. Stephen says, no, that is God. 
you know, God is a shout in the street. You know, yeah. God is like the present moment. Like that it's is God is it's pantheistic. Yeah. And right? it, it's not a top down hierarchy. Yeah. And God is children playing. You know, the voices of them having fun. Yeah. yeah. And and think about it, we talked about, you know, what is the point of Stephen's riddle? Right? Yeah, What's right. The, and and Stephen is riddling Stephen is just like, you know, Jesus, if you will, at this point, saying, Render under Caesar what is Caesar, render under God what is God. He's riddling Deezy. Because yeah. DZ can't understand the language that he's speaking. Yeah, DZ. I'm gonna give DZ a little credit. He is a good sport at the ends, you know. <laughs> Even I, I think he has to rush back though and get his last word in, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the very last moments we get at DZ are grotesque, though. The coughing, a rattling chain of phlegm. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean. I mean. You know, I, I like that play, right? Jo- Joyce never wants him to be a kind of straight-up awful tyrant villain. Yeah. But then, you know, he doesn't want him to get off the hook either, you know? So he makes him a kind of good sport. And then, but look what's really this guy's all about. Yeah. He's, he's kind of grotesque. Well, the fact, go ahead, Tom. Well, he makes him a good sport, but he also makes him a little bit prophetic because this is, this is about 1904. The hoof and mouth disease really does a number on their economy, I think, in 1912. So it does show that DZ has some prescience to a certain extent. DZ's arguing the problem's going to take care of itself, right? Is he? No, or, no. no. He's saying, no. you better listen to what I'm saying. There's a way to cure this. We have to take action now. Is that what I have saying? a relative who lives in Austria or something yeah. like that, and they're using this, and if you just oh. do this. And, and this would be personal for Joyce later on because he had a friend on the... The, the yeah. person that he's referencing is actually is a, a real person. Yeah, I read that. And he uses Joyce to 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 get the word out about a, a particular cure or whatever uh, for it later on. And I forget what I was re- reading. It, it does discuss this as like you know what direction is young James Joyce going to take? Is he going to go the journalist sort of mm-hmm. route to use his powers to persuade in, in the press, or will he sort of just you know continue on the path of of of, of you know uh, artistry? Yeah. What's the hoof and mouth disease? What is it, like? Do you know what it was? You've had it, Josh. What is it? It's like yeah, it's cow cloven for animals with ago. cloven feet suffer Hor- from it. Horses. No, I think it's standard cattle. Death, maybe. Death, death, because their export, like the 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 meat industry, was completely uh, crushed. Yeah, I think, and because the British started to, it it pretty much boxed it in, so it it put further restrictions on the Irish economy and would 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 give them further sort of a a bigger axe to even grind against the British. Right. I'm trying to make reference to another Trojan horse idea. You know, this (laughs) idea that death coming from domesticated animals. Yeah. yeah. And and yet. What's interesting is that how quickly you can make it a cow and not a horse, and yeah, the next yeah. thing you know, your history oh, and your storytelling is a think, little bit right. Because he's he, what does he reference in his letter, Clytemnestra? Right? He, yeah. one assumes that he's saying, "I'm like I'm sick of being Clytemnestra. Nobody's listening to me, but I'm telling the truth." So yeah, I think that that's yeah. good. You mean Cassandra? I'm sorry, I'm saying Clytemnestra. Yeah. I mean Cassandra. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the last uh, sentence. I think is uh, interesting. Cool. I don't know that I get it so much. Um, I get parts of it, I think. On the wise shoulders, through the checker work of leaves, the sun-flung spangles, dancing coins. I, the dancing coins are wonderful. It's a reference back, you know. But this all refers to his, like, last look at Deezy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Getting that? Yeah. What, what's with some of that imagery? The leaves and... You have can, I, can I take a gamble? Yeah. So all of the men of wisdom that have been referenced in Nestor are men associated with darkness, adjectives of darkness. Stephen in his own mind thinking of Aristotle. He's thinking of 
the, the incandescent form of forms, but it's all coming from a place of darkness secluded in the library of Saint Genevieve. I have no idea if that's how you say it, but Saint Genevieve. And then he thinks of Moses, Maimonides, and Averroes, and, and yeah. you know, men of dark mean because of their, you know, their associations with the East, and you know, Christ with his dark eyes. Deasy at two points when he's speaking is arrested when he walks into a sunbeam, right? So mm-hmm. Deasy should be the man giving the light of wisdom. Okay. And I think that metaphor is, or that imagery is sustained through the chapter. And we see that that's you know, where the light shines brightest. We see nothing. We see no wisdom whatsoever. So this is all tongue-in-cheek. It's, it's ironic. I just yeah. It is it's all, well, they call him wise on his wise shoulders. Yeah. You know, it's... And I just I think that the the imagery is beautiful. I yeah, like it's the checkered work of, of leaves, the sun flung spangles. There's just something. Be- and then then, then and you the, then well, you think right. coins, but yeah, you in your head I see like sparkly clean coins, not dirty. Yeah, we've all worked with administrators. Um, don't you can't you recall some that are all just full of uh, glitz and glamour, but have no real substance underneath yeah, them? I mean that's what that's what Deasy is. He's kind of a a middle manager that is. Um, that can make anything look great and sound great, but really he's has bu- no wisdom. He's has, bourgeois. <laughs> yeah, I think so. It's a perfect ending because what it's a perfect tribute, if you will, to Deasy because what was his central message to Stephen? Ultimately, put save money, your money. Yeah. Put, put, money, put, in put, put money in thy purse. And then you end with it like, cha-ching, I picture him pushing yeah. his button on his magic coin box and those coins shooting out. If this were Las Vegas, he'd have a suit with dollar signs on it. <laughs> Alright, I guess that's it. Anything else for uh, for this one? Uh, so next time we'll look at the very difficult Proteus.